Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hello and welcome to Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Torella. And I'm your better, prettier, younger host, Tori. We're sisters who are obsessed with true crime and love gal palin with you about cases. You can expect the occasional curse word, lots of friends quotes, and all the 90s nostalgia. To get in on the conversation, check us out at killerqueenspodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Killer Queens Podcast. And we're on YouTube at Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge and let's talk about some true crime. Happy Valentine's Day, y'all. Ooh, la la. It's kind of crazy. The two cases that we're covering or that we're yeah covering today are very... Well, no. <laughs> what am I talking about? Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. What are you talking about? This one is around Valentine's Day. And then the one that we did yesterday around Valentine's Day. Wow. I am forgetting what we did yesterday. <laughs> The Delphi murders, oh, they yes, yes, were missing yes. on February 13th. Yep. Yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. Yep. I was thinking love fraud. We we record so many episodes in a week. I like, I'm lost. I'm swimming over here. Yeah. What's really sad about murder is that you can pick, I mean, there's podcasts about it, like this day in true crime or today in true crime or whatever. There's a, you can find multiple murders for every day of the year. Yes. And that's the thing. It's so funny to me because and by funny, I mean really sad and tragic, but I have had so many people that are like, huh, true crime. Interesting. Uh, do you think you'll ever run out of, of material? And I'm like, you don't know anything about true crime then. Yeah. Have you met human beings? <laughs> exactly. The unfortunate truth is I wish that we could run out because that would mean that people would stop fucking murdering other people. But the right. thing is, it's never going to happen. Mm-mm. No, it's really, it's really sad. Yeah. While we would obviously have to pivot, the goal is that one day we don't have a job. Well, that's true. This job. But again, I think that throughout history, and if we're talking worldwide, Mm -hmm. I think the damage has been done already. Even if people stop murdering just right this very second. Oh, yeah. We still have plenty. Oh, yeah. To go many, 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 many years. It's, it is, it's a sad, um, it's a sad fact about humanity. What is it? Sword and Scales, like, whatever slogan or whatever. He's like, the show that reveals the worst monsters are real. And it's like, there's a lot we could say about him in particular, but yeah. uh, that's true. <laughs> like, hi, Pot. This is Kettle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, whether or not there's self-awareness in there, the observation is correct. Yeah, very true. And that's the scariest thing of all, isn't it? It's like, it's not the same at all, but the most dangerous game is hunting man. Yep. Yeah. And also, you know, it's the same. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's exactly the same, really. And (laughs) if you think about it like Valentine's Day, and you're like thinking about what are your Valentine's Day plans and like maybe doing something with a special someone, be that a partner, a spouse, you know, whatever. 
your cat. Just, you know, whoever, just remember or don't remember. I don't know. Maybe maybe it works for you to not remember that you're doing something special for the person who is statistically most likely to murder you. <laughs> so happy Valentine's Day. The same goes for cats. Ugh. Yeah. Don't even get me started. <laughs> You're the reason why we've lost <laughs> listeners because of your disdain and hatred for all cats. <laughs> I do not like cats. I'm so allergic to them. They make me puff up and barely be able to breathe. Well, if I learned anything from Fern Gully and Batty, puffing up is actually a good thing because humans hate that. Mm. Well. Remember when he's like, puff up, puff up. They hate that. <laughs> I love Batty. God, me too. I might watch it today just because of Batty. Well, there you go. Because I need a checkup from the neck up. I'm batty. Okay. <laughs> so we probably already lost a bunch of listeners and got us another couple. We we don't have enough one-star reviews, so. Yeah, we really are trying to up those. I still want to do a, it's very much like the celebrities read mean tweets, but the podcasters yes. read mean reviews. I think that it yeah. would be hilarious. I think it would be hilarious too, because, you know, you have to just be able to laugh, right? If you can't, what can you do? Yeah, that's true. Oh, as if we haven't talked enough, remember, <laughs> please do remember that we have a Patreon. And yes. if you want extra episodes, then go there. We do three episodes a week, dudes. We got the murder mixtape, which is just a whole separate case every week on Wednesday. Typically, they're at least an hour long because we can't shut up. You see that. And then on Fridays, we do Doc Jam. So we do episode by episode series coverage. So right now we're finishing up, as we record this today, we're finishing up Love Fraud. We'll already be in our next one by the time this airs. TBA, we don't know what it is. Yes. And we've done like Don't Fuck With Cats, uh, Tiger King, Filthy Rich, mm, uh, Filthy Rich, Confession Killer, mm-hmm. The Jinx. Yeah. And. Yeah. An added bonus is if you join the Patreon, you instantly get, no matter what tier it is, ad-free. Yes, all episodes ad-free. So that's pretty cool, you know? And we're introducing some new tier or like some new tier benefits. So stay tuned, no? Yeah, definitely. Because we're going to introduce at a tier Instagram close friends. So you can find out what we're doing all the time, I guess. <laughs> yeah, fun stuff. Yeah. A uh, video Q&A, all kind of things. So check it out, patreon.com slash killerqueenspod. And let us then commence the case. Yes, I would really appreciate that. Okay, great. Yeah, I think a lot of people would. Okay, so on Valentine's Day in 2006, while terrified and frantic men were probably at Walgreens digging through the last of the Valentine's cards and candy because they forgot quote unquote, to get something for their significant others. The Loveless family was just beginning the ordeal that would change their lives in so many ways. Mm. That Tuesday morning in the Loveless household, four children were being prepped for the day and the three oldest would head off to school. Curtis Loveless drove his three oldest to school and four-year-old Larson stayed home with mom, Corey. Curtis had said that Corey had been ill all weekend and they kind of described it as like, they thought maybe she had the flu or mm-hmm. something. Yeah, vomiting, um, really fatigued. Yeah, just general feeling like two pieces of shit rubbed together. Yes. Plus throwing up. I mean, awful. 
Sounds bad. So she'd been sick all weekend, but she still gets up this morning and gets the kids ready for school. And then she sat down on the stairs, just exhausted. And he had to help her get back up the stairs and go lay down. And he's like, you know what, honey? It's Valentine's Day. Um, You're obviously so sick, you can't even stand up. Now that you've gotten the kids ready for school, why don't you take a break? I'll drive them today, okay? <laughs> I'm like, you let her fucking get out of bed and get get the kids ready your damn self. Well, yeah, he's like, now that everything is done, why don't mm-hmm. you take a break? Yeah, like, I'm sorry. I get that, like, he had to go to work and shit too, but, like, your wife can barely stand up. Get your kids ready for school. I think what you can What do you think manage. single parents do? Ugh, yeah. They have to go to work. They have to get everything done, like, you can fucking do it. Yeah, you can handle it, dude. Yeah. Uh, there's this this is a this is a crazy case, I guess. I don't want to give anything away quite yet if you if you're not familiar with the case, but this just really peeved me right off. <laughs> Cuz he's well, like, "Well, yeah, you know, she she got up and helped me get the kids ready." I'm like, "Are you fucking kidding me? You couldn't be like, "Hey, just stay in bed." Mhm. Anyway, So he drops the three oldest off. He gets back home around nine o'clock and he said he goes to the bedroom where he found his wife laying in bed and her eyes were open. And he would later tell 48 Hours that what he saw upon entering the bedroom was not a person who needed help. He knew immediately when he saw her that she was dead. He doesn't call 911 though. He says his first thought is for Larson because Larson is the four-year-old who was still in the house. He wanted to get him out of the house before things got crazy. He said he scooped him up from his bed and drove him around the corner to Corey's parents' house. And luckily, they lived very close by. Larson later testified that sometime after his dad had left with his siblings, he went into the bedroom where he tried to wake up his mom. He said he poked her and he yelled at her, but she didn't wake up. And then he got scared. So he went to wait for his dad on the stairs. And then at some point he went to his bedroom and he laid down in his bed to wait for his dad to come back home. That breaks my heart. That is so heartbreaking. Marty Diedrichson, which is Corey's mom, said Curtis showed up that morning with Larson and asked her to watch him. And then she's like, and then he turns to leave and he just goes, oh, by the way, Corey's dead. Like, what? Who does that? Who does that? Yeah. Isn't that the first thing you say? Like, oh my God, Marty, I just found Corey dead. Can you please take Larson? I don't want him in the house. When the police and everybody get there, I don't know what's going on. I'll call you as soon as I can to update you. Yeah, exactly. Something just, oh, hey, can you take Larson for a little bit? Oh, by the way, Corey's dead. Bye. Yeah, like an afterthought. Like, oh, and also, oh, uh, I gotta I pick up dry to tell you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What the hell? So callous. Yeah. It. Yes. Incredibly callous. I think that's the the way she described it too. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today, and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh oh oh! O'Reilly. Curtis Loveless was born and raised in Quincy, Illinois, and it's a small town where everybody knows everybody. Everybody calls you friend. Don't need an in, but no. <laughs> I mean, you can. We'll wait. 
Okay, good. <laughs> it's very, how's your mom and them? Mm-hmm. And in this small town, Curtis was the golden child. He was called easygoing and a gentleman, and he was also described as fun-loving and intelligent. Curtis was the center on the high school football team and a hardworking student. He got a football scholarship to the University of Illinois, where he was majoring in business administration and was an all-Big Ten center. I don't know what that means. It must be a sports thing. Oh, and thank you to Sloan for uh, researching and writing this case because yes. she also was like shrug emoji, whatever the fuck that is, basically. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, cool. Yeah, never heard of her. I have no idea. I'll take your word for it. Yeah. Yes. Local journalist and high school sports announcer Bill Goff said that Curtis even got into a free agent camp in the NFL with the Patriots. I actually do know what that means. And that's pretty impressive. So does that mean I'm going, rather than letting you just explain it, I'm going to try to figure it out. Okay. All right. This should be fun. Go ahead. Yeah, exactly. Play a little game I like to call, I don't know shit about sports, but I'm going to try to pretend. Right. Does that mean that you have not been scouted or like they haven't, what's the word? Drafted. Drafted, mm-hmm. they, he has not been drafted, but he, it's like he walk kind of a walk on where he like goes and he's also like gets to try out for the squad. Yeah, pretty much. It's like Red Rover, Red Rover, and they did not send you right over. So now you're just like hanging out there. And then, but you're, I think you're like training and all that kind of stuff. And then you can, you can you're negotiate like on the wait list. pretty much, but you, you're not. Not stuck. It's not stuck, but like you're not uh, like beholden to just one team. You know, you can go wherever you get the best offer, whatever. So, like, there are football players who have, and watch me be like 100% wrong and like I don't know what I'm talking about, but based on what my husband squawks at me every year, this is what I've figured out. There are football players who do get drafted to teams or whatever, and they sign a contract and all that kind of stuff. And then when their contract is up, they become a free agent. So they get to pick where they go instead of being like, oh, I'm drafted. I've signed a contract, and now I have to play for this team and live in the city for however many years or whatever. Yeah, that makes sense. They can kind of pick where they want to go. Cool. Cool. Sports. Yay. Yeah, cool. Super cool. Yeah. Super cool. Uh, (laughs) Unfortunately... (laughs) Love it, love it. (laughs) A little I care. I'm sorry. I know it's like a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar industry. And I get there's appeal. People love it. I'm not, you know, there's no judgment if you do like it. I just think it's fucking stupid. But look at the things that I like. Fucking stupid. Like, yeah, you know, I'm very like, don't take my word for it. Yeah, pretty much everything is fucking stupid in some way. It's just if it's your kind of stupid, right? Exactly, exactly. So, unfortunately, his football career came to an abrupt halt when he suffered a knee injury. However, Curtis hadn't been completely reliant on football. He would have a degree to fall back on. During college, Curtis began a relationship with Corey Diedrichson. The two had gone to high school together, but reconnected during college. Their relationship was long distance at first. Curtis was in college at University of Illinois, and Corey was at University of Iowa studying communications. Corey was born in Cedar Rapids, Iowa on December 7th, 1967, and her family would move to Illinois where she and Curtis would both attend Quincy High School. Corey was described as vibrant, dynamic, and stubborn. Her mom called her stubborn. 
which is such a mom thing <laughs> to mm-hmm. do. My mom, Torella, would definitely call me stubborn. Yes, 100%. Marty, Corey's mom, said that Corey had the perfect smile. And it's amazing to me how much they look alike. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very, they do. very And much. then Lindsay, the oldest, looks just oh, like them too. yes. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Once she met Curtis, Corey knew that he was the one. Marty remembers, quote, unquote, it was Thanksgiving. We were sitting up on her bed and we were just kind of talking about things. And she said, oh, by the way, I've met the man I'm going to marry. Marty told her daughter, if you love him, then that's all that matters. And Corey was right. One year after the two graduated college, which was January 1991, Curtis and Corey got married and friends said that they were well-matched. Curtis went to law school. He was ambitious and had big plans. Corey's plans were more geared toward family. Corey had always wanted a big family. And in 1993, the couple welcomed their first child, Lindsay. Then Logan came in 1997, Lincoln in 99, and finally Larson in 2001. I just now put together that all of their kids' names start with L. Ooh, and their last name is Loveless. Larson Loveless. Logan Loveless. What was the other one? Lincoln Lincoln Loveless. Yeah. Lindsay Loveless. Wow. And then they're Curtis and Corey. Yeah, I do kind of enjoy the fact that they didn't go with all C's though, because that's that could have been... That's even worse. Yeah. That's way worse. Yeah. I have seen also like... There's a girl that... I think I went to high school there or something, but her, it was like her parents' name started with like, like one of them was a J and one of them was a K. So then they did all of their kids' names L. So like JKL. And I'm like, what? Who cares? Like, I don't know. (laughs) Like, what does it matter? It's putting a lot of thought into some sort of like weird inside joke that no one's going to get. I don't know. I know. I know. It's so weird. It's so weird. Because it's like parents. If it was, if it was initials, yeah, like if they're whatever, if their initials were JKL, I'm like, okay, cool. Maybe. Yeah, it's still, yeah. exactly. Like, oh, okay, cool. Cool story, bro. Yeah. Much like, here I go again. I can't stop with the fucking Golden Girls. <laughs> Blanche's middle name is Elizabeth. So her initials are bed. Blanche Elizabeth Devereaux. Oh my God, stop it. I know. So let's get back to the case. Okay. Lindsay remembers her mom as loving and involved. She said Corey was in the PTA and was a room parent. And I did not know what a room parent was, but just in case you don't know, just like me, room parents are the parents of students in your class who are like go-tos when you need volunteers, cutting shit out, uh, helping with the teacher, like stuff like that. Lindsay said that her mom was always there for their dance recitals, sports games, and anything they were involved in. Lindsay also recalled one of her fondest memories of her mom for 48 hours. She said that her mom loved ABBA. Same, girl. I fucking love ABBA, Torello. This doesn't concern you. Mm-mm, mm-mm. No, none of my business. <laughs> Sloan loves it too, or them. Uh, yeah. And apparently, Corey would always put it on and would dance around and sing. That reminds me of someone named Miss KB <laughs> who would put on Motown. Yep. And we would dance around. And we knew all the words. Yes. Because we were the ooh ooh girls. We were. However, life can't always be disco balls and ABBA dance parties. Too bad, man. I know. know. So Curtis had gotten busy over the years. By 2005, he was working at the state's attorney's office as assistant state's attorney. As assistant to the state's attorney. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's like, hello, uh, thank you for calling the desk of the assistant state's attorney. And they're like, assistant <laughs> to the state's attorney. 
Then while working there, he also started his own law firm. Then he was elected as president of the school board and he became a captain in the Illinois National Guard and an (laughs) adjunct professor at Quincy University. This guy was killing it. Here's what I see as a wife. Somebody doesn't want to come home. Ooh, well. I don't know. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, could you fucking find anything else to keep you away from here and have me do all the shit by myself at home? And they have four children. Four children. Yeah. I mean, that's, I don't know. that's just asking to not get your dingling played with. Oh, 100%. It's like, I'm sorry. Um, I haven't had time to shave my legs in eight years, so you do it yourself. Yeah, exactly. Fuck off. Yeah, I don't know. It's, I'm sure he's fine. Whatever. I don't know. Maybe I'm just, this kind of shit just pisses me off. It's like, you have four kids. Could you not find, like, could any of those things that you spend all your time doing be something that you could also do with your children or your family? Like, right. Like, he could have taken one of those and maybe been like, the coach for Little League. Yeah. And maybe he did do some of that, but it just seems like, where the fuck would he have had time? Exactly. But the thing is, is, Curtis was known for his goals as far as like his career. Yeah. Corey was known for wanting a family. Like they were very much, Corey was family, Curtis was work. Like, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that, drove a wedge between them or anything, but it's like maybe they could have found the other... Well, you can't have two super hardworking parents like no. Curtis and, and still have a family, but... Right, yeah. And and I think that if both people are like, I'm good with that, I'm good with his main thing being his job and I'm good with my main thing being at home and doing all of the stuff, but... You know, I know that doing that many things professionally is difficult. Taking care of kids, not even four kids, like one kid is a lot. She's got four kids. They're all in stuff, you know, like then you've Mm -hmm. got this one has practice here. Then this one has practice here. Then I got to shuttle this one over here. And then this one has homework, you know, like all the stuff. Everybody's got, you know, stuff at different times. They're all different ages. So it's not like, It's all the same, you know, same time, same place, everything. So she's got all of that. Lindsay says she never missed any of it. She certainly didn't mention her father coming to any of their stuff. She wasn't like they both, you know, were there for everything or anything like that. It doesn't mean he wasn't there, but I have a feeling he was at work. And it's just kind of one of those understood things that like, oh, dad's working. He can't be here. Oh, dad's working. He's not going to be for dinner. Oh, dad's working. And like, I understand that there is a lot of that that, needs to happen. There's schedule things and you have to put food on the table and stuff. It just seems like, especially since during this time, their marriage is starting to have a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that she was so cool with, okay, I'll do everything, including I'm deathly ill, but I will get up and fucking get the kids ready for school because it's my job. Yeah, exactly. What is he doing? He doesn't have to put his makeup on. He doesn't have to curl his hair. So what is he doing that morning while she's getting four children ready, or I guess three, the older children, getting three children ready, and she's super sick, and he's still going to go to work, and Larson is going to stay home with her? Yeah, apparently. (laughs) Well, and I know exactly what he was doing, and I think you do too. 
those sports stats and stuff are not going to check themselves. So, hundred percent. He was drinking his coffee, having a leisurely fucking morning, looking at sports shit. Uh, am I bitter? No, I'm not. No, <laughs> this is just what I've seen. Right, and I think the more you say it out loud that you're not bitter, the more people will believe it. So, yeah, yeah, no, I think that's right, and. <laughs> Yeah. And that's not, I mean, it's just, I've seen this so much, you know, like, well, how many cases have we covered? (laughs) Yeah. Again, if everybody is totally fine with that, there are, you know, there are families that they're able to work that way. It's just, this is kind of a time like right now where a lot of, uh, I mean, especially women, it can be in any, you know, relationship, but especially women are standing up and being like, look, I can do things outside of the home too. And guess what? You can help inside of the home. Mm -hmm. Like there are so many things that go into keeping a family in a home running. And yes, providing for that life is important, but you eat the food, you wear the clothes, you use the stuff at the house, you know, it's like, and I'm just expected to make sure when you go to take a shower that you've got a fresh towel there. Like, where do you well, think yeah. that came from? Somebody fucking did the did the laundry for that. Like, well, and whoever is the homemaker, their job is never done. Like, you don't get to clock out. You live at your job. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Curtis is doing all this stuff. He's feeling like too big for his britches, apparently. He might have been too big for his britches as you get older. You get a little too big for him. Well, that's true. But this is figuratively. Now, literally, he may have been. But his friends were like, he got super arrogant. And he lost friends over it. Like, people didn't even want to associate with him anymore. He was being so... It's not a good look. No, it's not a good look. And Lindsay said that they were fighting a lot more. Her parents were. And she also said, she was like, you know, I thought it was normal at first, but... It started getting more frequent. It started getting loud enough that neighbors could hear it like from their own houses or like if they were walking past, like walking a dog, they could hear the arguments. I mean, you can hear a lot in a neighborhood, you know, mm-hmm. but I mean, that's pretty, assuming the windows aren't all open, you know? Yeah. It, it's getting it's getting explosive, it seems like, at least verbally. And... Curtis would later say that Corey yelled at the kids, quote unquote, weekly or more. And I'm like, she had four kids. If she only yelled at her kids once a week, that's pretty incredible. Yeah. I would say, I mean, they, if, you know, whatever. But I mean, not saying you should yell at your kids all the time, but no, but it's super fucking easy Mm -hmm. for a husband or whoever is, whatever role people are playing. So the person who's at home taking care of the kids, they are up to their eyeballs in stress because they're having to do everything and they're around the kids all the time. And they're basically a single parent. And Mm -hmm. then the outside of the home worker parent comes in and they're like, man, you're always so angry. And it's like, no, Mm -hmm. I'm doing too much. I have too much on my plate here. I need help. Yeah, exactly. And this is the, you're walking in at five o'clock PM. You haven't been here all day. You're seeing me get frustrated at this point when I'm talking to one of the kids about do this or do that or whatever, or, you know, no, you can't have that or, you know, whatever. That's the first time you're hearing it. That's the 50th time I've said it in the last hour. You just missed the other 49. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm frustrated. And Tori actually sent me a meme the other day 
And it says, am I an angry mom or am I a mom trying to do too much stuff at all at the same time? And it has cooking and serving meals, answering calls and text, keeping the family and household running, responding to work demands. And that's with or without, you know, if you are working from home, outside the home, whatever, that's just another added thing. If you're not working, then all the other stuff is still a ton. Making mental or written to-do lists, documenting memories, playing with the kids and parenting, tending to the pets, and listening and staying aware of everyone's needs. Oh, and cleaning up. And like the listening and being aware of everyone's needs is that thing where like you are constantly anticipating and like taking responsibility for other people's like your entire family's emotional well-being. And typically this person, whoever it is that's home more, that's who the kids are going to come to more. You know, when they have emotional issues that they need to deal with, they want that person that they're typically that they're with more. Well, and I feel like, because I remember, so, and this is, I don't know, it probably goes along with what you're saying, but I don't know. But we had mom and dad at home. And I think we've kind of touched on mom's not in our lives anymore and because she wasn't actually that much of a mother. Mm -hmm. But dad anticipated our needs way more than mom did. Mom Mm -hmm. kind of couldn't give a shit. So dad, I went to, I mean, we would go to dad for everything because it was a safe place. We knew that we could land there and he would already have everything. Like he provided a good, safe environment for us. Yeah. Yeah. The parent that does that, the kids are going to be like, hey, I'm going to ask you for everything because you, I know I'm going to get it from you. Yeah. And I think for us, I don't know if you can say we were spoiled by having a father who was just as involved, if, I mean, not the more. Fact that, the fact that that is considered being spoiled rather I than know. expected. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I know. And that, I mean, that's the thing. And like, it also, it shows that like, you know, so many, Men, and again, this can be in any type of relationship, but it's just, it's incredibly prominent in heterosexual relationships, especially mom does all the stuff and dad goes to work. Like it's just kind of, that's been the norm, you know? Like, mm-hmm. look at any sitcom from the 90s. <laughs> yeah, it's been the norm. And so many men are just like, well, I'm the provider. That's what I do. Like I work. And then, you know, when I come home, I should be able to relax and blah, blah, blah. And that's just how we're wired. Like you're better at the emotional stuff and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, I've been trained more to do that kind of stuff. I mean, growing up, typically, what are girls given to play with? Baby dolls. And what are boys given to play? You know, like we definitely are conditioned to be that way. But dad grew up in the 60s. And he could do it. So don't tell me it's not possible. It's possible. You have to want to do it. Dad had a motorcycle before I was born and he got rid of it when I was born because there was a risk that what if he got in a wreck and couldn't take care of us anymore? It wasn't worth it to him. Boom, the motorcycle's gone. Yeah. You you as a dad can give up some of your shit to be with your family. You just well, choose not to. Exactly. That's the thing because it wasn't like dad was forced to. He wanted Mm-mm. to. Yeah. Nobody had to ask him to do that. And I don't know, maybe it's, this is kind of turning into, I guess, something different, but it, I think that that is, I don't know. I just feel like it's a huge part of this case because I think that that's what their life was like at this point. 
was just very, you do all of this here. I go to work. I go here. I go there. I go here. I'm just so busy. I don't have time for all of this. I've got stuff that I need to do. I'm very important outside of the home. It's just, it can make for a volatile relationship. And you can kind of start to see maybe a possible motive. Like, you know, is there just so much turmoil in the relationship that did, you know, did somebody snap or whatever? Yeah. What other, the thing is though, that's not the only problem in the marriage. Like, Mm -hmm. and it often, you know, there's often like many layers to marital problems, but they had some other things affecting their marriage, didn't they? Yes, they did. So Corey and Curtis were both alcoholics and Corey specifically was not taking care of herself. She had struggled with bulimia as well. Both Curtis and Corey's mom knew about this. Corey's mom also said that Corey had not been to the doctor in the four years since she had given birth to Larson. Drinking to excess can often make a bad situation worse. And that's exactly what was happening to Curtis and Corey's marriage. Curtis said, Quote, there was alcoholism in the home. We loved each other, but it wasn't a perfect marriage and the alcoholism didn't help that, end quote. The weekend before Valentine's Day, Corey had been sick. Curtis said that she seemed to have the flu. Both Curtis and the children reported seeing Corey up and about that Valentine's Day morning. She was getting the kids ready, making breakfast and packing lunches. I'm okay. Yeah. Okay, Dan. Lindsay remembers saying, I love you when she left for school. Her mother, by this point, was sitting on the stairs exhausted. Yeah, and Lindsay also talked about the fact that Corey had gotten, you know, because on Valentine's Day, your mom or whoever is going to send you with, in this case, it was it was Corey, is going to send you with your little Valentines for your buds at school. <laughs> your buds. So she she got them all you know, ready with their lunches packed and she had all of their little Valentines for their for their classmates. Mm-hmm. And they talked about that, that she was, you know, packing all that stuff up for them that morning. Well, yeah. And Lindsay had said in the Dateline Uncovered or Dateline... Oh yeah, Secrets Uncovered. Yeah. Secrets Uncovered, yes. That she was like, even if she was sick, if there were things that were expected of her or things that she felt like she had to do, she would like compartmentalize her sickness and still get shit done. Like, mm-hmm. it just goes to show you what kind of mom she was. Yeah. After Curtis told Marty nonchalantly that Corey was dead, she said that she wanted to go with him. She testified later that he told her that everything was taken care of and he left. Which doesn't make any sense because at that point, nothing was taken care of, but okay. Yeah, he didn't. He hadn't even called 911 yet. No. On his way home, Curtis called his boss, John Bernard, and told him Corey was dead. Bernard asked Curtis if he'd called 911 yet. And when Curtis said he hadn't, Bernard said he'd call. Some of the first people on the scene were lead detective Jeff Baird of the Quincy Police and EMTs Cole Miller and William Ballard. EMT Miller entered the bedroom and found 38-year-old Corey lying on the bed with the sheets pulled up about waist high. What was odd was that Corey's arms were still clenched up at her chest. This would prove to be a point of contention for the remainder of the case. Miller checked for signs of life as he was trained to do. He reported that he checked the carotid artery pulse in the neck and her wrist. He said that her wrist was cold and stiff. AMT Ballard later testified that Corey's arms were resting on her chest and when he pulled them up, they stayed there. He claimed he felt, quote unquote, a bit of rigor mortis in her arms and that her hands and wrists were cooler than the torso, which was warm. 
Now, side note, which we've been doing this a lot lately, but I think this is kind of a good indicator of our family's sense of humor and where it was maybe a little bit of foreshadowing. (laughs) So I don't remember what age it was, but I was a little too, probably too old for like stuffed animals. But that was kind of my gig. I mean, look at my room right now. Yeah, you don't consider now being too old for stuffed animals, but okay. We're not talking about that, okay? I'm talking about a specific time in history. Stop it. Okay. Lock it up. (laughs) So, so... I my whole life I've always been too old for stuffed animals, but I still play with them anyway. Mm-hmm. So it was, I don't know, I think like middle school-ish, like sixth grade, something like that. Maybe yeah. younger, maybe fifth grade. And I had this stuffed animal cat and a friend of mine, Rebecca, we would like, we were very into it and I don't know why, very into cats. And so I had this stuffed animal cat. I don't remember its name. Dad, Miss <laughs> <Ms>. KB, <laughs> renamed her Riggy. <laughs> which is short for rigor mortis because it was it, yeah it was one of those like stuffed animals that it wasn't like a beanie baby that was like flexible in any way it was like this very it just sat there <laughs> it just yeah it was like very stiff the arms legs like none of it moved it was just like a cat sitting up like a statue yes. of its yeah but i mean it was plush uh-huh but yeah it didn't move and so yeah dad was like hey riggy and that's all he called it was riggy Mm-hmm. And we were and like, what? He laughed his ass off about it. And we were like, what does it mean? And he was like, you know, like rigor mortis. And we were like, what is that? And <laughs> I remember being like embarrassed because I was like, I don't know. Like, I don't get the joke. Like, I don't know what it is. And then he finally Ooh. explained it. And I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> this must be a grown up, really funny joke. <laughs> yeah, apparently. And now we can laugh about it. <laughs> yeah. Riggy. Riggy, yep. Photos of the body were taken between 10 and 10.20 a.m. And both Baird and the coroner felt Corey's abdomen noting that it was still warm to the touch, as was her forehead. Detective Baird described no sign of a struggle, no evidence of a homicide, and he noted mild rigor in one arm and moderate rigor in the other. He said that her limbs were still pliable. He noted that her body was still fairly warm, warm to the touch at both forehead and abdomen. When Baird interviewed Curtis at around 10.40 a.m., he said that he felt Curtis was acting appropriately distraught. Man, how many times have we talked about? (laughs) Oh, man, yeah. What is appropriately distraught, but Mm -hmm. yeah. Curtis told Baird that Corey had asked him for a Tylenol in the early morning hours, which he gave her. He said he thinks she threw it up. He was up around 6.30 a.m. and said Corey was still ill, so he decided he'd cancel his classes and stay home to take care of Larson. Okay, well, there you go. Okay, well, that's all right. So maybe I was a little too hard on him. I actually knew that and completely forgot it, obviously. (laughs) I just, I went into a blind rage. I don't know. Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, you motherfucker. Um, But he still let her get up and do all that stuff when he knew that he gave her a Tylenol in the early morning hours and she'd already barfed it up. Like, come on. It doesn't excuse the behavior. And also, does nobody really care about maybe the kids catching whatever this illness is? That's what I was thinking. I'm like, you're letting her pack the lunches and she's barfing all over the place. Like, don't you, like, this is a sandwich. It's not like we're baking it at 500 degrees, like, or boiling it. Like, she's making sandwiches and sending them to school and be like, okay, well, I guess we'll all have the stomach flu in a couple days. Like, yeah, yeah. whatever. Coroner Hamilton and Deputy Coroner Jim Keller removed the body from the home. Hamilton put in his report that there was rigor in Corey's arms and legs. 
An autopsy was performed by Dr. Jessica Bowman on February 15th at Memorial Medical Center in Springfield, Illinois. And it was found that Corey had steatosis of the liver or fatty liver disease, which is fat buildup in her liver that can be attributed to alcoholism. So that's, you know, corroborating the we were both drinking way too much statement. Mm -hmm. Marty told Detective Baird about Corey's bulimia and alcoholism. Photos were taken again around 12 p.m. and more advanced rigor was present, but still not full rigor. Dr. Bowman did find a small cut on the inside of Corey's upper lip. Detective Baird found out from Lindsay that her mom had fallen on Sunday and that's when she got the cut. Other than that finding, there was nothing else significant reported and her cause of death was marked as undetermined. Two days after her death, Corey Loveless was cremated and a funeral was held. Curtis had written a eulogy, but he was so choked up that he couldn't read it. The pastor read it for him. On March 8th, Dr. Bowman signed the autopsy report where she wrote, unexplained trauma of mouth and signs of death inconsistent with the time frame given by history. However, there is marked steatosis of the liver associated with sudden demise, but characteristically diagnosed by the absence of any other findings. Detective Baird quickly closed the case and the surviving Lovelaces tried to pick up and move forward. And that's it, right? Like, story over, done. Mm-hmm. But not exactly, because there's a lot more. So right. eight years after Corey Lovelace was found dead in her bedroom, Curtis Lovelace remarried. He and Christine got married on December 26, 2013, and she quit her job in Minneapolis, moved to Quincy, and started a pie shop there. Christine ended up adopting the boys, but Lindsay was already 18 and she wasn't living with them. So not, you know, not necessary, I guess. By this time, Curtis had stopped drinking altogether and he had been fired from the Adams County State Attorney's Office, but we don't know why he was fired from that. So weird. That same month, unbeknownst to the newly married couple, patrol cop Adam Gibson was promoted to detective. The rookie detective has told many different ways that he came about reinvestigating the Loveless case. He once said that he had been perusing old cases and come across the file. He found the conflicting evidence interesting. However, he would testify in court that the reason he chose this case was because Dr. Bowman was fired from the hospital when her autopsy opinions became questionable. He also said at another time that he'd always been curious about the Loveless case and didn't think that Corey's death looked natural. He got permission from police chief Robert Copley to take another look into the case. And while the original detective had ruled that this was not a murder, Gibson disagreed and set out to prove that Curtis Loveless had murdered his wife that Valentine's Day back in 2006. Is it like, do we know for sure that Dr. Bowman was fired for questionable autopsy opinions? I have no idea because in the history of us doing this, which makes us experts, I've never heard of anybody being fired for that because we've had people who have come back and been like, whoops, yeah, I messed up. I completely got that completely wrong. And they seem to still have a job. So I don't know. Yeah, it seems like it'd be really, I mean, once somebody is in that position, it seems like it'd be really difficult. Like, I mean, it almost has to be one of those things like um, in the staircase, that one guy, Dwayne Deaver or whatever, oh, how, yes. you know, finally, once they had court proven evidence that he wasn't doing things the way he was supposed to, but 
then they go back and look at his his autopsies, but that doesn't seem like what's happening here or his uh his cases that he worked on. Mm-hmm. So like in her case, it seems like if that was in fact true, that then they would go and reinvestigate as a like a, a countywide thing or whatever her autopsy findings or something. But I don't know. I just he's just thrown so much shit out that I just don't I'm like, okay, I want to see the paperwork for that. I'm just wondering. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I don't know, the way that he went about trying to reopen the case and reopening it kind of seems like he's just like, well, you know, we got probable cause. <laughs> and that's like literally it. But he's like, hang on, I can find something to to support this. It's fine. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't buy it. Don't mm-hmm. buy it. So just like that, on January 3rd, 2014, one week after Curtis Loveless got remarried, Detective Gibson began his homicide investigation. Gibson had Dr. Jane Turner of St. Louis take a look at the reports, and she felt that Corey had been suffocated by a pillow that had been left on top of her with her arms around it. Later, the pillow was removed, and because rigor had set in, Corey's arms stayed in that position. Dr. Turner also believed that Corey was murdered at least 10 to 12 hours before Curtis called 911. Based on this report from Dr. Turner, Curtis Loveless was indicted on August 27th, 2014. And all of the findings that she has are based off of photos because they don't have yes, a body. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. The whole reason, like, he goes back and looks through this file and he's looking through everything and he's like, okay, okay, okay. And then he sees this one photo. And remember, they took several sets of photos, but he finds this one photo and her arms are kind of like, like, imagine if you were like holding, like, holding covers, like, maybe up at your neck, you know? But yes. there's nothing in her hands. No, is that right? Are, are her hands toward her neck or are her hands out? I forget now. It looked to me like her hands were... So if you saw a taxidermied bear and it was like clawing at something, but if they were just brought down a little bit, just just hovering right over her chest. Okay, yeah. So yeah, it wasn't it wasn't bent towards her, but they were, yeah, they were up. So they just weren't sitting flush on her chest and he sees this one photo and says that's it it's murder because what was her and that's what this dr turner is saying too what were her hands her hands had to have been resting on something they're not going to i don't want to say solidify but you know they're not going to come to their final resting place hovering in the air with nothing underneath them so she's saying well what had to have been there was a pillow because what had to have happened was that she was suffocated by a pillow. The person left it there. And then they came back and said, oh, fuck, I got to get rid of this pillow because they'll know I suffocated her. Right. And then moved the pillow and then her arms just stayed there. Well, and I think that what furthered her findings, I guess, was the cut in her mouth. She was like, oh, okay. So that proves further that she was suffocated because it was like somebody forcing something onto her face and that cut her lip. Right, yeah. And when we have the testimony from the daughter that she fell a couple days before and she knew that at that time she sustained a cut to her lip. Exactly. Well, and one of the detectives said that there was a blemish, a skin blemish underneath her nose and they couldn't figure out what that was from. And I was like, have you ever had a cold? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Have you ever wiped your nose? That's my immediate thought whenever they said a skin blemish. I was like, oh, she was wiping her nose too much. 
Uh-huh. Yeah, it gets like raw and red and peels yeah. and all kind of stuff. Yeah. Terrell is in a constant state of that. I, I know I am right now, honestly. It's like peeling a lot. Um, my kids keep telling me I have boogers and I'm like, guys, I just have dry skin. Leave me alone. <laughs> and then for the doctor to just be able to look at a photo and be like, oh, she definitely died 10 to 12 hours before he called. It's like based on this picture, because I would think you'd want to talk about body temperatures. I, well, yeah, it's it's not an exact science if, if you have a body. Yeah. So to... 100% say with certainty it was 10 to 12 hours from a photo? I don't think so. I cannot believe that this was even brought to trial. I know the fact that it went as far as it did based <sighs> yeah. on literally nothing. Yeah. Like they had bupkis and they still managed to make it work. And this is, again, it's one of those fucking cases that we talk about where it's like, as much as I don't love Curtis and I'll be the first one to say it, he's not yeah. my favorite person. It's very Michael Peterson from The Staircase. Don't love him. Not on mm -hmm. the same level. I dislike mm -hmm. Michael Peterson way more, but I don't love Curtis. Did it make him a killer? No. Did he Did he act kind of questionably after, directly after his wife died or probably before that too? Yeah. Does it make him a killer? No. I, I You can't say that. Well, and to take this leap of saying her her arms are not resting on her body, therefore, what had it to had have been to there have was happened, a yeah. pillow. We don't have a pillowcase with smeared makeup on it or blood on it from that cut on her lip. Like, we don't have anything tying a pillow to this incident at all, other than the fact that she was like in a bed. But like being like, well, it had to have been a pillow, which means that somebody would have had to have suffocated her and then they would have had to have left it under her arms and they would have had to remove it. Like you just you just said, that's like the, I've believed as many as like 10 impossible things for eight o'clock in the morning or whatever. It's like, <laughs> I've thrown out as many as like 14 just unfounded theories in a murder trial before it even, you know, goes to court. Like, there's nothing there. You just made up a bunch of shit and said, this had to have happened. It had to have happened. It had to have happened. It had to have happened. Where did I get this information? I kind of pulled it out of my ass. I don't know. Exactly. But I'm going to put somebody through a murder trial over it. And put them in jail for however long. Yeah. So Curtis was arrested and placed in jail on a $5 million bond. His family scraped together every bit of money that they could. And they hired private counsel at over a million dollars. Curtis went to trial, and after two weeks of testimony and evidence presentation, the trial ended in a hung jury, and the judge declared a mistrial on February 5th, 2016. The jurors could not agree on the element of Corey's arms being in that clinched position. If she was killed the night before, as the prosecution claimed, how did the kids remember seeing her awake and moving around in the morning? Mm -hmm. But special prosecutor Edwin Parkinson was not letting this go, and he promised to retry the case, and the second trial was scheduled for May 31st, 2016. Okay, so I understand as a prosecutor, what have we talked about till we're blue in the face? The point is to secure convictions. Somebody has to pay. Think about what this is putting the whole entire family through. Like, mm -hmm. this is how many years later? Yeah. 10 years later, and they're probably just like, we just want to get through it. We just want to move on. Yeah, we're we've we're trying to accept the fact that we've lost our mother and yeah, move on and like just remember the good stuff and yeah, all that. And it's like, and you're mm -hmm. dragging out everything because a defense's job is to, you know, I mean, they're gonna have to bring up her alcoholism and all of that yeah. as like 
that's why she fell down. She was drinking so much. It's just like her kids don't need to hear all that. They don't need to know every intimate detail of their parents' marriage and, you know. 100%. And Lindsay might have seen it. The older kids might have seen it. Larson didn't. And Mm -hmm. now he knows. Exactly. Yeah. And that's like a memory he just didn't need to, or like information he didn't need to have. Mm Mm-mm. So in preparation for their next trial, a motion was granted to change the location. The first trial had been held in Quincy. Members of the jury knew the Lovelaces, which was always going to be an issue in the small town. Everyone knows everyone and gossip reigns supreme. The second trial was located, relocated to Springfield and began a year after the first trial. Marty Diedrichson testified to Curtis's callous way of telling her that her daughter was dead. The Loveless boys testified that they saw their mother that morning, and by far the most explosive testimony came from Erica Gomez, Curtis Loveless's second wife. Who the fuck is Erica Gomez, you may ask? Well, I'm so glad you asked. So, six months after Corey's death, Curtis Loveless began dating one of his students at Quincy University named Erica Gomez. Six months. Good God. And a student. If I learned anything from watching Friends and Mm. Ross and Elizabeth, you can't do that. It's not just frowned upon. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Apparently, yes. Lindsay told 48 Hours that her dad came to the kids and talked to them about him dating again. And she said she was totally shocked. In hindsight, Curtis Loveless says that Erica was a rebound relationship and that he was lonely. He admits that he regrets his relationship and marriage to Erica. It is insane to me that he, I mean, we all make mistakes, right? Like I've got some dark, dark days, people that I don't want to admit to having been with. He married her. Yeah, this was a this was a long relationship considering it was, yeah, a fucking rebound one. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, so they started dating. And then two years after that, they got married. Lindsay was 14 years old by this time and said that Erica viewed the kid's deceased mother as an enemy and she had an unnatural hatred of the late Corey Loveless. Erica would say awful things about Corey and Lindsay wouldn't stand for it. She would tell Erica to cut it out and Erica would punish Lindsay while Curtis did nothing to stop her. This kind of dynamic, it upsets me so much. And Erica was how much younger than Curtis? Mm -hmm. Like a a big difference there. Like huge difference. Lindsay and Erica's contentious relationship came to a head one Christmas Eve when Corey's family invited the Loveless family over for dinner. It had been Corey's favorite holiday and they wanted everyone to be together. That was hard for Lindsay and she started crying. And then Erica walked in and told Lindsay they were leaving like now. Lindsay took a couple minutes to calm down and pull herself back together and then went to join her family. Erica, Curtis, Logan, Lincoln, and Larson had left without Lindsay. That is so much alliteration in one sentence. (laughs) Corey's family was furious and this became the impetus for the destruction of the Loveless family unit. Back at their house, Erica had thrown all of Lindsay's belongings into the street and destroyed her room. So Lindsay moved out of their house, and she moved in with her grandmother, Marty. In 2013, Erica and Curtis got divorced. Curtis said he tried to make the split amicable and peaceful, but that's not Erica's style. Uh, no shit. Look at what he what she did to his daughter's bedroom. Like, how old are you? Uh, yeah, and for what? Because she got emotional with her mom's family who has passed away? Yeah. She's like, yeah, grow up. 
Later, when he was married to Christine, Erica's sister was caught on video at a pet store buying a rat, and then her friends released the rat in Christine's pie shop. Good Lord. And they've been divorced at least for a couple years at this point. Grow up. Yeah, Erica needs... Erica needs some therapy. Yeah, she does. And okay, so back to the trial because Erica testified at this trial and it was a fucking shit show. (laughs) I literally do not understand why they called her. I mean, it was ridiculous. It was insane. And her dramatics and theatrics, oh my goodness. Oh my gosh. She started just throwing everything out there she could at Curtis. She said she'd seen him get rid of evidence and use the kids to get rid of evidence. She accused him of using her social security number to steal money from her accounts. She said he sexually assaulted her. Then she's like, and he was poisoning me. (laughs) My hair was falling out and my nails had white lines in them. She said that he had like physically attacked her at one point. Just all kinds of crazy stuff. Like when she was like, yeah, and he was poisoning me. She's like going through all this stuff. And I'm like, okay, Mm-mm. I think you probably need to like, like slow your roll here because now you're just starting to like, just say stuff. It was very obvious that she was just like, oh, I needed this. Oh, I needed that. Oh, I needed this. It was, it just did not look good. And when she talked about him poisoning her, when she was cross-examined, the attorney, the defense attorney was like, well, did you ever talk to a doctor about this? And she's like, no. And he's like, so do you have any evidence of having been poisoned or seeking any type of medical treatment? You know, because if you're being poisoned, you're going to be sick. Mm-hmm. You're going to be very sick. And she's, she sought no medical treatment. She never saw a doctor. She just said no, because I, she said, I knew it wouldn't matter. That's your answer. I knew it wouldn't matter if I told somebody. People who say that kind of stuff, it's because it's not true. Yeah. They're making it up. It just does not, I don't know. And Detective Gibson had talked with Erica many times during the second investigation. And when she told him about the poisoning, they got her hair tested since poisons can stay in your hair for up to a year and a half. And all of the tests were negative. Yeah. It was bad. I mean, it was really bad. And we should mention that the attorney that Curtis ends up getting for the second trial, he had never done a criminal case before. It was like his first, maybe his first criminal case, definitely his first murder trial. Mm -hmm. And I mean, he fucking destroyed her on the stand. Well, and as he should have. (laughs) Well, yeah. And like, And the prosecution, it's like, why would you call her at all? Like, if you think you're going to use her to prove that Curtis is this violent person and he does all these, like, you're just showing, you're just showing how crazy you are. Like, because there's always that question of like, if you call an ex to the stand or whatever, it's like, does this person have an ax to grind or are they telling the truth? You know, especially Mm -hmm. if it's things that you can't substantiate with police reports or uh, medical records or whatever it is. And just the way that she testified, like, I mean, there's, you know, there's 48 hours on it. There's a dateline on it. Like you can see some of her testimony. It's so obvious that she's just mad at him. Yeah. And she's just trying to throw him under the bus. It's really bad. It's crazy. 
So we're going to talk about Detective Gibson's quote unquote investigation now. Mm -hmm. And that's like the laser like investigation. (laughs) This is not zippy long stockings or whatever. Like, no. Yeah. So also called to the stand was Detective Adam Gibson, who had almost unilaterally decided to reopen the case as a homicide investigation. He did not come out looking great, though. Mm -mm. During his time on the witness stand, the defense accused him of, quote-unquote, doctor shopping and committing Brady violations. This accusation was backed by a surprising amount of evidence. It was more evidence that, (laughs) that proved that he fucked up than he found on Curtis to prove that he had killed Corey. Yeah, it's like the absolute irony that like really the most evidence in this case is against the detective who investigated it versus the actual defendant. Yeah. There's literally nothing. (laughs) Gibson had talked to Coroner Keller after he was given permission to reopen the case, who said that he had been trained that it takes several hours for there to be visible dehydration in the lips and eyes, which were present in the autopsy. He believed her dehydration was quite advanced that the smell when he entered the room was strong, meaning that she had been dead for a while and that she was in full rigor. He also told Gibson that the lividity was darker purple, meaning it was older. Could her quite advanced dehydration also be attributed to a couple things? She'd been barfing for how long now? A couple days? Mm -hmm. That will dehydrate you. I mean, I know diarrhea dehydrates you more than barfing does. But still, if she's not replacing that with liquid because she feels so shitty, that's dehydration right there. She also is an alcoholic. Yeah, and there was a cup next to her bed that was like a vodka soda or vodka tonic. Yes, and she's that sick. So yeah, if she if the only liquid that she's taking in while she's this sick is alcohol, you're going to be dehydrated. Like, dehydrated. I said I that the weird. way. You're gonna, <laughs> you put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. I really did. You're going to have dehy- dehydration. Now I don't know how to say it. You're going to be dehydrated. <laughs> I don't know why I did that. Um, yeah. So you know what I'm trying to say here, but like the, the alcohol and the vomiting, that's going to affect it. Like you can't just look at somebody and be like, okay, this person was this amount of dehydrated. So this is how long she's been dead. Like you have all these other factors. Even is there a fan on in the bedroom? If you've got a fan going and she's been laying there dead, it's going to dry shit out. Like if her eyes mm-hmm. were open and you know, all these things, there's just so many factors. So I don't know. It, it's, it just feels like they're taking nothing else into account. And they're just like, look at her arms. Definitely murder. Oh, and by the way, she was dehydrated. <laughs> and um, that's all we need to know. Well, and yeah, all of this. Uh, that's the thing. Everything that we're talking about is coming from photos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's literally it. Because we don't have a body to exhume. It's no. just ridiculous. It's okay. On January 6, 2014, Gibson went to the assistant state attorney's office and talked to Bernard about the call he got from Curtis that morning back in 2006. Then Gibson swung by Gary Farha's office, who also worked there with Corey. Gibson asked Farah about Curtis's behavior as Farah felt that he had been threatened by Curtis Loveless when Curtis didn't get an interview for chief public defender. Farah said that Curtis was in a rage and 
Barnard doesn't remember anything like this happening or any other time that Curtis seemed really angry. This same day, Gibson talked to the paramedics and firefighters that had been at the Loveless's house that morning. One of the first responders said that he put an EKG leads, or he put EKG leads on Corey to check for a heartbeat. Gibson's reports about what William Ballard, the EMT, smelled in the house stated that Ballard smelled an odor in addition to alcohol. But at trial, Ballard testified that the smell was only alcohol and not a deceased person. Gibson emailed a doctor in Scotland to ask if it was possible for suffocation to cause spasming or instantaneous rigor. Gibson told him that Corey was in full rigor. The Scottish doctor said that he thought Corey's time of death was consistent with the state of rigor. Gibson communicated with this doctor via email and did not document what he had learned from the doctor. (laughs) Because it didn't match what he wanted to hear. Exactly. So he's like, we're going to pretend like that never happened. Yeah. Just kidding. Do over. Detective Gibson's doctor shopping and Brady violations were confirmed by all the emails that he had deleted on January 8th, 2015, but were retrieved by the defense. Gibson had deleted these emails and thus withheld the evidence within them. That is egregious. Uh, Yeah, I cannot. And did he get fired? No. No. No, he probably got promoted. Mm Mm-hmm. When they had started the trial, the defense put a FOIA request in and found out about all the emails that Gibson deleted. He claimed that they all deleted their emails because of limited space, but deleted emails are saved on the main server. You dumb bitch. (laughs) Not only did Gibson delete all his emails, he also didn't document many of the conversations and reports he had participated in. One of the emails recovered was from a Dr. Gibson I consulted with that stated that he, the doctor, didn't feel like this would be a good murder case because the cause of death was listed as undetermined. And then Gibson was like, oh yeah, well screw you then. (laughs) Exactly. Gibson started his investigation with one suspect and a desperate need to prove his theory. One of his first interviews had been with Erica, but other than her widespread and erroneous claims in the eight months that he'd investigated, none were of, like he could not find any of the regular motives that you would find in a spousal murder. There were no life insurance policies on Corey and there were no secret lovers. Plus, Corey was the one that took care of the kids. So without her, he was a single father with four kids. And we already know he can't even get them ready when she's barfing. So he needs her around. How's he supposed to do that? Exactly. At the January 6, 2014 meeting with the Adams County coroner, Gibson did not request a report from the coroner and didn't provide his own summary of what they talked about for the official files. It was reported that he said either verbally or by email, I will not cover the findings in my report. Then he found Dr. Scott Denton, who also told him that his case had some serious holes. The autopsy report mentioned the cut on Corey's lip, which could have been caused by suffocation, but if it had, it would have been a fresh injury and would have bled. And, you know, like, yeah, like we said earlier, there's no blood anywhere. There's no blood on a pillow that they're alleging was used. Like, they don't find any blood on a pillowcase or anything like Mm -mm. that. Dr. Denton said that there was no blood on the pillows, as he would have expected. Another big clue of suffocation is petechial hemorrhaging in the eyes, but this was not noted in Corey's autopsy report. How many times have we talked about petechial hemorrhaging? It's in every suffocation case. Mm -hmm. Like, 
it, that's significant that we don't see that here, that that injury on her lip is old, that it's, it's starting to heal because it's, it's not bleeding. Like, exactly. I it just, just doesn't, none of this supports the trial that they're going like the, none no, of it supports that it x supports it it's like goes the yes. complete opposite way it's so ridiculous yes it unsupports it yeah dr denton also brought up the fatty liver uh Corey's liver was twice as large as a typical liver and this alone could have caused her death in fact one of the articles cited two studies that reinforced the death by liver failure case i mean yeah that's a that's a uh that's a real thing. I mean, it's it's very sad, but it does happen. And you can be very young and otherwise healthy. Because I know that a big thing in this case was they were like, you know, 38-year-old women don't just drop dead. She seemed young and she seemed pretty healthy, you know? Mm-hmm. You can look pretty healthy on the outside and your insides can be just in absolute deterioration depending on what you're putting into your body too. Or not. Yeah. Yes, exactly. One study was from France in 1992. Doctors reported that there are definite risks for people who are not eating and who are drinking heavily. They stated that some of these patients died of no other apparent cause other than steatosis of the liver. No obvious cause of death was found in these four patients. Shortly before their death, the four patients had increased their ethanol and decreased their food intake. And I'm also assuming that the water intake is not adequate either, you know? Yeah. So you don't have anything diluting this in your body. It's just your organs trying to trying to process. Yeah, process yeah. it. Another was from Japan where the article had very similar results with 11 patients. These 11 patients died without warning and it was found on autopsy that they all had steatosis. Death followed several days of uninterrupted drinking often with little dietary intake. Good God. But Gibson doesn't want to hear that. So he <laughs> leaves Dr. Denton and he finds Dr. Shaka Tease. Is that right? I don't know, but I hope so. I know it's a really cool name. So that's what that we're going to go with that. Dr. Shaka Tease in Chicago. On March 17th, 2014, Dr. Tease talked with Detective Gibson at length and once again told Gibson that there was no evidence to prove a homicide had occurred. Dr. Tease did tell him, though, that there was actually plenty of evidence that pointed to the failing liver. When she asked to know what Dr. Denton's findings were, Gibson refused to share that information with her. Gibson just can't catch a break with this, can he? Mm -mm. I'm trying so hard to find. He's literally like, I I don't know. I just feel like he's being like a toddler. And they're like, okay, so you want to tell me this? And he's like, no. I don't. I'm not going to tell you. Like, if you don't know, I'm not going to tell you. Like, I just... Exactly. No, I don't want to tell you that. Gibson wasn't getting the results he wanted and asked Dr. Tease not to write a report. However, she's no dummy. And instead of not writing a report, she did write him a lengthy email that summarized what they had talked about. Yes, mic drop, Dr. Tease. Uh Uh-huh. She said, part of the reason I sent him that email was when I asked him what Dr. Denton said, he wasn't being forthcoming. So I'm not going to get caught committing a Brady violation. Like, good on you, girl. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Other doctors would say that the position Corey's arms were in could be due to her having a seizure at the time of death as well. Detective Gibson finally found the doctor he'd been looking for in Dr. Jane Turner. 
He presented the information to her, so she had Gibson's reports, photographs, and opinions to make her decisions. She'd never been in the room with Corey's body as opposed to the original lead detective and the EMT and the kids who saw Corey alive that morning. Dr. Turner decided that Corey had been suffocated 10 to 12 hours before, and that was exactly what Gibson had wanted, so he kept her report. Defense attorney Dr. John Lovey accused Detective Adam Gibson of creating a crime where there was none. They called pathologist Dr. William Oliver, who had previously testified in the O.J. Simpson case, who said he has no doubt that Corey died from alcohol withdrawal and acute liver failure. In a risky move, the defense called Curtis to take the stand, and he told the story of finding Corey with her eyes open and she was pale. He was emotional, but not hysteric. Very believable. In the end, the loveless boys all testified, but Lindsay didn't. She had become less of a supporter of her dad. She doesn't fully believe he did it, but she feels like she can't trust her memories of that day enough to be certain. She originally said that she remembered saying goodbye and I love you to her mom, but that space in her brain has become kind of a black hole. In closing statements, prosecutor Edwin Parkinson would claim Curtis's motive was that Corey was an alcoholic and yelled at him and snapped. (laughs) Parkinson also brilliantly said, he committed a stupid crime. Mr. Smart, smart man over there. (laughs) Mr. Run home to her daddy, ran home to her daddy. Like, exactly. Where'd you get your clothes? The toilet store? Yeah, like, what kind of a fucking closing argument is that? Like, hey, jury, um, just just go with me here, okay? (laughs) Yeah, and then I feel like the defense was like, uh, we would like to say to the prosecution, uh, I'm rubber and you're glue and whatever you say bounce off means sticks to you. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. And um, also you're a butt munch. Exactly. Yeah. This does not make any sense. And also the whole thing with Lindsay, I don't know how to feel about it. I understand. Here's the thing. She talked to detectives immediately after her mom died. And then she talked to them again fairly soon after that, right? It was like, yes. they talked to her a couple times. Then they talked to her a couple times again once they started looking back into this. And she told them- And this is six, eight, 10 years later. Yeah. She tells them she was up and about that morning. She helped us get ready. She sent us off to school with our Valentines, like all that kind of stuff. All the boys say that too. She was awake that morning. Larson, I don't think could say that she was awake, but he does remember trying to talk to her and her not waking up which is Mm -hmm. horrific. It is. But the other boys say, yeah, she was up. She was helping us get ready. And then she went back to bed and dad took us to school. There's so many statements from children. And those are the same exact statements they gave at the time. Mm -hmm. And then after he's indicted, I don't know what happened, but for some reason, she... She begins to question her own memory. Mm-hmm. And she's like, well, I don't know. Now I can't be sure. And I understand you don't want to lie on the stand. So if you're not 100% sure, she's doing the right thing by not taking the stand. Yeah. But but you do have to look into and think about the fact that they have a very tense relationship at that point because of everything that's happened. Like, I feel like she probably resents her dad a lot. Uh-huh. And because of everything that transpired directly after that. And she's living probably way closer to Marty, her grandmother, than she is to her dad. 
Yeah. And there's no telling because it's not, I'm not going to, there's no finger of blame being pointed here at all. But Marty, from what I got from the Dateline Secrets Uncovered thing, was that Marty was like, not a big fan of Curtis and is not so sure that Curtis didn't do it. Yeah. Just because she's like, what, 38-year-old? And, you know, that that kind of goes with the territory of being a mom and not wanting to to believe maybe that your daughter... I mean, she she was very honest and open about the bulimia, but she didn't... Uh-huh. Kind of about the alcoholism, but they they really seem to blow over the alcoholism. Like when 100%. You, yeah, when related. you talk to them, Corey's family and Lindsay... It's very, yeah, she talked about the bulimia. She really glazed over the alcoholism. And if we're talking about her liver is twice the size it should be, that's significant drinking. Oh, definitely. And the thing is, so it's reminding me because I have a friend, had a friend who went through something incredibly similar, was not eating, was drinking a ton because of things that went on in her life. And she ended up passing away very young. She was 30. Mm -hmm. And same reason. Absolutely. When you talk to her family, they're like, there's no way it was drinking. She wasn't, it was had to, we have to figure out what else it was. Maybe she had a liver disease we didn't know about. Uh And I'm not saying that that's not true. All I'm saying is it's a little, I feel like they're just not ready to believe the truth. Yeah. And maybe it feels like, a character attack on your loved one or whatever, which it shouldn't be. I mean, no. it's just as much of a disease as bulimia or like, sure. Why is bulimia less embarrassing than alcohol? Like it, th- neither should be. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the whole, the whole conversation around it should not be, oh, wow. Well, she's an alcoholic. Like forget her, you know, she did this mm-hmm. to herself. It's like, Hey, this person has, you know, been through something. There's a reason that you're drawn to alcohol or drugs or whatever it is, mm-hmm. bulimia, all that kind of stuff. Let's figure out what the underlying cause is and get you help. Like, yeah, absolutely. It doesn't have to be this kept secret that nobody talks about because it's taboo. Right. And I can see that, like, you know, I mean, you've, Talk to me about this with some of the like intervention episodes and stuff that you've watched where soccer moms or whatever, like housewives and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it that's the thing about addiction. It touches every person. It is, it is not a discriminator of persons. It doesn't matter who you are. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what kind of life you leave. It doesn't matter if you live in a big house or if you live in your car. It can touch you. It affects everybody. Mm-hmm. There's just different reasons. And there's plenty yeah. of moms who feel overwhelmed and like they're drowning and like, you know, and they just need something to either numb the pain or feel like they have enough energy to get through the day or whatever it is. That's not uncommon. Right. And it shouldn't be stigmatized. And it's, I can't imagine how difficult it would be to find out that that's, you know, why somebody that you love died. But if you ignore those things, because these things can also be hereditary. So let's make sure we're talking to the kids about this and how dangerous it is and help them understand this is not something when you go off to college, you're going to need to be careful. Mm -hmm. Going to keggers and all that kind of stuff is going to be different for you because you might be prone to this. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I feel like when you just ignore 
what happened a glaring problem you're doomed to repeat it yeah yeah and then you put you know the kids who are susceptible to developing it in more danger i feel like it's just in a family with addiction issues i think it needs to be an open discussion yeah i agree 100% so the jury would deliberate for only 2 hours before coming back with a verdict of not guilty jurors would tell 48 hours that the prosecution had not made its case beyond a reasonable doubt it didn't make its case beyond any doubt. No, how it, yeah, exactly. How it got there is just beyond me. Yeah. They weren't all sure if it was natural causes or murder, but there just was not enough evidence to convict him. And we discussed it right before we started recording. And I was like, this case is literally if Home Alone, like how it should have gone mm-hmm. is like how Home Alone should have gone if it happened, came out right now. Like yeah. a quick text, like, hey, did we leave you at home? Yeah, okay, we're coming back to get you. That's the end of it. Well, yeah, exactly. Because the whole thing is, guys, his Detective Gibson's whole thing was I saw the picture and her arms up in the air. I knew right then this was foul play. This was murder. On the stand, Curtis's defense attorney says, Are you aware that this other EMT testified that the reason that her arms were up like that and they were not resting on her chest is because he had moved her arms to get to her chest so that he could do the things that he needed to do to check for signs of life and try to administer aid to her. And he's like, um, no, I actually was not aware of that. And they're like, okay, so you're finding that out right now then that the reason that you saw her arms up like that in this picture is because somebody moved them and because of the state that she was in, they stayed. And he's like, yeah, so this, I'm just learning about that. And they're like, okay. So like one small statement caused all of this rigmarole. and Yeah, because he obviously either didn't see that in a report, but on top of that, if you're going to go back and investigate this case, why the fuck you didn't talk to those EMTs? I have no idea. Had he talked to that guy, he would have found that information out. I know exactly why he didn't talk to those EMTs is because they, they have a job that's based in, steeped in science, and he probably knew that he wasn't going to get anything out of them that he needed to, so he was like, well, because he actually saw, they saw the body, so. Well, exactly. And is this a situation where he got promoted and then he was like, I've got to solve an old murder and like make a name for myself right now? Like. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, come on. I know. So after the trial, Curtis and his family were so relieved about the verdict. They could finally move forward. He and Christine were concerned about moving back to Quincy where all the gossip had not died down and may never fully stop. Christine told 48 Hours, I cannot even begin to explain to you what it's like to go to the local market and have people pointing at you and talking behind their hands or having them even cut us off and say, look, there's the loveless family or, oh, there's the killer family. Our lives will never be the same and we have to figure out how to carve out a future, how to carve out a career for Kurt for myself. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous because once somebody is, I don't know, I guess I'm a hypocrite because Casey Anthony (laughs) fucking did it and she was acquitted, but like he's acquitted. There's no evidence against him, not not one shred of evidence. And the one quote unquote shred of evidence that caused the entire investigation, you have the detective admitting on the stand he didn't realize that that wasn't actually evidence, that that wasn't Mm -hmm. actually what he thought it was. So 
you've got this total unraveling of the case on the stand. I, I don't think that he did it. Mm-mm. And I don't think that there's anything that says he did it. And actually, there's so much information that points the other way that this was a natural death. It's not expected. It's not the natural death you think of, like, you know, when you're 90 and, you know, whatever, but it happened. And for people to go around and still point at them and call them the killer family, like, I don't know. Cause once you do, you know, once you open that can, you can't put the worms back in, like it's out. Mm -hmm. And no Mm -hmm. matter what, you know, anybody says in the media, like, okay, well, actually he was found not guilty. And actually all of this information was proven to be incorrect. You're still going to have people that are like, yeah, well, I think you did it. Yeah, exactly. No one has spoken to Lindsay since 2014. They were advised that they should not associate with anyone who isn't fully 100% behind Curtis. Christine and Curtis want to reconcile with her, but it's going to take a lot of rebuilding. Lindsay says she wants to be the kind of woman that her mother was. Curtis is still seeking justice through stating, it bothers me to be called a murderer, to be publicly accused of it, of such a horrible act. He feels that the prosecutor should have never brought this case to trial. And he ended up filing a federal lawsuit in 2017 against Detective Adam Gibson, Police Chief Robert Copley, Sergeant John Summers, well, just a bunch of people, the state's attorney, everybody. The lawsuit covers all of the lovelessness except Lindsay. The claims are like due process violation, malicious prosecution, unlawful detention, all kinds of things that, you know, go into somebody being almost wrongfully convicted. Mm. The last news on this case was the October 2020 article saying that it was ruled that the case will proceed. No decision has been made at this point, but Curtis Loveless and his family have a great deal of proof that the justice system failed them and actively plotted against them and Adam Gibson in specific. Jim Keller resigned as coroner, but as of now, Adam Gibson is still a detective in the Quincy Police Department. And in fact, he was named Elder Service Officer of the Year by Illinois Attorney General Quayne Raul in September 2019. What did I say? He didn't get yep. promoted because of this, but they always get promoted. Yep, they do. And the Quincy Police Department posted on Facebook, Detective Gibson was nominated for his tireless work in tracking down those who prey on the elderly, both financial and physically. He is an invaluable asset to our agency and the surrounding area. The city of Quincy obviously wants the lawsuits dropped. (laughs) That is very like outcry to me. It's like you have, again, you have proof. He's on the stand saying, oh, I didn't do my job because this information I should have come across when I was reviewing things and I fucking didn't. Like, I do not understand how that happens, you know? Nope. And then and then mm-hmm. they go on to call him an invaluable asset. Like, come on. Yeah. I mean, it's very reminiscent of outcry. Uh-huh. Yeah. Let's promote daily. him. Yeah. daily. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that's the case. You know, again, happy Valentine's Day. Hopefully, everybody survives it. God. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I mean, yeah, me too, but it's kind of a weird fucking thing to say. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just kidding. Anyway, stay alive out there. Yeah, have fun, dudes. Yeah, have a good one. Eat a bunch of chocolate. Mm -hmm. Watch some good fun movies or whatever you're planning on doing. Stay safe and we will catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye. 
before we leave today, before we GTFO, <laughs> Dory can not stop saying GTFO today. It's funny. We have some shout outs for new patrons. Yay. 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 Thank- oh, <laughs> we're throwing t-shirts. You can't see it. Um, hey girl. Thanks to Randy Camp, Katie Gilbert, Kelly Green, KT McMorrin, Lauren, Lena Dayton, Stephanie Inman, Caitlin Michaels, Kristen Ann, Sally Mize, and Nikki McKee. We hey, girl, love you so much. If you want your name to be on this episode, well, not this episode. This one's done. It's, yeah. in, the, it's in the bag. What are you can't doing? change it. Yeah. Make it promises you can't keep. Yeah. I'm like, we will go back in time <laughs> for you. Can't do that. But what we can do is we can put your name in a future episode. Just join Patreon. Yeah, girl. Oh, it's so easy. A caveman could do it. That's really offensive to cavemen. I'm sorry. I think it's time for me to GTFO. (laughs) Bye. Bye. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening and we will meet you back here next week. Bye. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloan Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at killerqueenspodcast.com for merch and other info about the show. 